Welcome to Tower Talks with Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast. And now for your weekly recap, a timely review of this week's top headlines and takeaways. Here's your host. Welcome to Inside Towers Week in Review. I'm Leslie Stimson, Inside Towers Washington Bureau Chief. With me today are John Celentano, our business editor, and Jim Fryer, our managing editor. This episode is sponsored by Inside Towers Intelligence, a quarterly market report that dives deep into the wireless infrastructure ecosystem. It looks at market trends, capital expenditures, relevant M&A transactions, and more. Our Q3 issue is available now. Intelligence is designed for managers, marketers, and investors. An annual subscription also includes an exclusive briefing and online support. For more information or to subscribe, visit InsideTowers.com slash intelligence. And our first story, Jim, you're going to start us off with a story about a monopine at a historic site. Yeah? Yeah. Now, we we like covering the wide world of towers, uh, certainly the um, the big tower companies, and uh, but also the middle tier and smaller companies that that are out there in the in the trenches and and getting up sites all over the country and and in every kind of conceivable location. And uh, I thought this one was was interesting. Uh, smaller tower company, but Blue Ridge Towers out of uh, Virginia, uh, owned by a gentleman named Anthony Smith, and. Um, he sent us a notice that they had two years in the making had fought to try to get a tower up, uh, but it was outside of a historical state park, uh, the Booker T. Washington National Monument in Hardy, Virginia, where Booker T. Washington uh, grew up in like a little slave cabin. Um, and uh, so it's that, that park and they were putting up a, a tower just outside the park, and there was all kinds of fighting over a couple of years' time, uh, according to Anthony, as far as uh, what they what they needed. The the effect on the view shed was was always a, a big issue, as it as it is uh, in close proximity to any historical society, any historical site. So um, he, uh, he he fought that battle for two years, and 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 finally won after they. Agreed to, of course, the monopine design, which sometimes you know becomes the clincher in, in some of these type of battles. But um, they did agree to a 160-foot monopine uh, configuration that would go, uh, as I said, just outside the park. But at the same time, the the, the park committee had to sign off on it uh, because they obviously wanted people in their park taking pictures of things and you know being. Uh, sending them out to on, on social media and, and promoting uh, that way. So they saw the advantage of, of having this, uh, having this tower in a, in a nearby location. And um, in fact, the planning commission voted six to nothing with un, one abstention for the, uh, for the monopine. So we love reporting on stories like that, that are, uh, uh, that show our, our industry at, at, at work, but at the same time, Two years can go into something like that. So congratulations, Anthony and Blue Ridge Towers for, for getting that up. Yeah, it's a great human interest story as well. Um, the FCC made its auction one ten 10 results official. 
uh, the winners of the, the 5G spectrum auction of flexible use licenses in the 3.45 gigahertz band were, well, the, the five bidders with the highest total gross bids were AT&T, more than 9 billion, Dish, 7.3 billion, T-Mobile, 2.9 billion, a company called 345 Spectrum with 1.3 billion and U.S. Cellular with a paltry 579 million. Um, New Street Research called the big gap between Dish's bids and T-Mobile's kind of surprising. Verizon didn't bid, which was kind of notable, according to Moffat Nathanson. Uh, that group also said AT&T's 9 billion translates to nearly a quarter turn of additional leverage. As for Dish Network, it's roughly two years of EBITDA. So the five bidders winning the most licenses were AT&T with more than 1,600, Dish with more than 1,200, U.S. Cellular 380, Cherry Wireless 319, and T-Mobile 199. And FCC Chairwoman Jessica Rosenworcel said the results demonstrate the commission's pivot to mid-band spectrum for 5G was the right move. The FCC says the auction will enable what they're calling robust commercial use by an array of service providers, while also ensuring that federal incumbents are still protected from harmful interference. So, John, you had an interesting story this week. Uh, you had a, an interview with a woman at Tillman Infrastructure. Uh, yes, Leslie, an interesting development. Um, uh, Tillman Infrastructure an independent tower company in, in the United States appointed uh, Saruchi Ahuja as chief executive officer that took effect on January 1st. Uh, she becomes one of uh, just a handful of, of women who are heading up tower companies. And uh, so it's quite significant in that regard. <clears throat> um, in an exclusive interview with us, um, uh, Ahuja elaborated on several aspects of uh, Tillman's uh, uh, growth prospects. We did an article about a year ago where when they announced their thousandth tower. And she indicated that they built several hundred towers through 2021. And the company has a committed pipeline of several thousand towers over the next several years. And she said, our current line of sight is two to three times growth in, the, in a couple of years. Uh, she is a, a Tillman Infrastructure founding member and, and has served as president and chief financial officer since August uh, uh, 2016. And during that time, she helped take the business from startup to a successful relationships with the major carriers in the U.S. Uh, she did clarify that Towers' business model is strictly macro, macro towers uh, with uh, highly selective acquisition opportunities. They basically built a suit, and uh, they're not diversifying outside of towers, uh, either into uh, fiber or data centers and that sort of thing. Uh, they see lots of opportunities in small markets and uh, and, and, and uh, rural areas that are are uh, that the national carriers are trying to build out their coverage. So yeah, this is uh, this is a story we're going to watch. Uh, um, you know, Tillman uh, Infrastructure has uh, established itself as a um, a maverick in the marketplace and it is working with the major carriers to build out in in other markets. Uh, that are currently underserved. So um, as she said, they take a lot of pride in, in working with the communities that they're operating in. So it's an interesting story. 
It is. And um, is it unusual for an infrastructure company to have a woman as a CEO? Well, she's not unique. There are other companies out there that have uh, CEOs, uh, women as CEOs. But um, I think this particular appointment is, um, you know, is notable. And, um, uh, you know, Tillman has a um, kind of a unique place in, in the marketplace and, uh, and she's heading it up. So it's, uh, it's a good story and we're going to continue to follow it. Thank you, John. So this week I spent a lot of time on the, I don't, I don't even know what to call it, the interaction between the FCC, the FAA, the carriers, the airlines, the pilots, anybody to do with aviation about 5G on C-band. Um, you know, the, at the last minute, uh, the FAA had a late plea saying they, they, went to the administration and said, please intervene, please don't let the carriers go on uh, 5G on C-band on Wednesday as they had planned. The bottom line is the AT&T and Verizon agreed to a third, uh, basically a third delay on some towers near airports. I mean, they, they're doing, <clears throat> they're restricting um, uh, with the, with the FAA wanted and which AT&T and Verizon agreed to was no 5G within two miles of certain airports. And Reuters reported that this meant it was not deploying 5G on just under 10% of the towers or about 500 towers. Um, they have not said what airports those towers are at. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a big deal. And you know, one might say, well, how did all this come about? Well, it was, I think it was 2018, the FCC went to the FAA and the Department of Transportation and said, we want to do this. Let us know if you think there's an issue. They didn't hear anything. But then um, a woman who used to be with the Department of Transportation was telling the New York Times this week that uh, there was a letter from the FAA to NTIA warning of this interference possibility to the radio uh, radio altimeters. But that letter never got passed on to the FCC and it didn't get passed on to the wireless company. So here we are and we'll see how this goes. Uh, New Street Research says, yes, there's a delay on some towers, but the Carriers still got to roll out 5G, so they think in the long run this won't be a huge deal. Um, the carriers agreed to uh, go at a lower power on on towers near airports uh, for six months. So we'll have to see. There's a whole lot of legs on this story, and we are going to keep covering it. Um, and that brings us to NTIA. The Senate confirmed Alan Davidson who's worked with Google and other tech, tech companies to lead NTIA. And it, it's interesting story because um, NTIA is a small agency. It only has about 150 people, but it's been tasked by Congress with overseeing, distributing the bulk of the 65 billion set aside by the infrastructure bill. They're actually going to distribute uh, 48 billion to um, the states. And the Washington Post asked for two former NTIA chiefs, David Reddell and Larry Irving, 
what they see as the biggest hurdles for Davidson. And David Reddle said, you know, uh, there's going to be a whole lot more eyes, especially from Capitol Hill on NTIA, given that it's going to have this responsibility for all this money. And uh, Larry Irving said um, Davidson would be wise to prioritize developing relationships on the Hill because that's going to help him. Um, and they both talked about the mapping issue that the broadband maps that the FCC currently has are inaccurate and say, you know, the FCC is going to fix them. But David Reddle also said the FCC is going to do what it can given the constraints, meaning, you know, it's government funded projects. So they're, they're going to do what they can do. And that brings us to, uh, I think, a story from you, Jim. One of the more dynamic companies out there is Phoenix Tower International, and they just reported that they've got a new partner, uh, Blackstone Infrastructure Partners, who purchased a 35% stake in Phoenix Tower. And even though uh, uh, Phoenix has been one of the more aggressive companies, uh, or I think they're looking at probably even uh, supercharging that even more with uh, with with a few more deep pockets uh, now behind them as, as part of the partnership. They already operate 14,000 cell towers across 18 countries. Uh, and uh, Dagan Casavana, the owner, of, uh, the CEO and owner of Phoenix Towers, said uh, uh, it, that it's part of the massive growth opportunity in the wireless sector across the world. And he's uh, said he was pleased to have his world-class partners from Blackstone on his team to continue to expand the business. So uh, good luck to, to him and Phoenix and uh, continued expansion. Thanks, Jim. So John, you had um, one of the legs we've been following on the 5G on C-band issue, the difference between here and what they're doing in Europe. Um, can you explain that? Yeah, uh, all through this argument uh, where the FAA and the airlines are pushing back uh, on the FCC and the wireless carriers um, about the perceived problems that 5G introduces, um, there's always a reference made, well, look, um, C-band is operating in Europe and none of the airlines uh, out of Europe uh, or travel to Europe from the United States have been affected. So what's the big deal? Well, when you look into it, uh, there, there is a difference, and the difference has to do with where on the C-band frequency range uh, the United States uh, operates and where Europe operates. Um, in the United States, the carriers have been allocated um, uh, spectrum in the 3.7 to 3.98 frequency range. Um, the altimeters operate at 4.2 to 4.4 gigahertz. Uh, so there's a 220 meg separation between the high end of the, the C-band range for wireless and the low end for the altimeters. In Europe, it's even greater. Uh, in Europe, they operate um, between uh, 3.4 and 3.8 gigahertz. And then the altimeters still operate in the 4.2 to 4.4. So that gives them a 400 megahertz separation, about 1.8 times what we, what we are able to uh, garner in the United States. Um, so as a consequence, European airlines are not seeing any kind of interference from the radios that are operating in the C-band range at airports um, uh, throughout Europe. 
In fact, the, um, the comments from regulatory bodies uh, indicated that they're not seeing any reports uh, uh, of uh, immediate safety concerns. The European Union Aviation Safety Administration and the, uh, the UK's Civil Aviation Authority uh, basically said, you know, we haven't seen anything. There's no confirmed instances of 5G interference. So um, I want to point out, too, that, you know, when it comes to 5G, 5G is safe in all other frequency bands. You know, we're using low bands, 6, 7, 800 megahertz, lower mid band, uh, AWS 2.5, 345, CBRS. And, and uh, above, above the C band in millimeter wave frequencies, that are used for 5G as well. There's no interference issues whatsoever. So it's only in this particular part of the, the frequency band that um, the airlines and the FAA are taking issue. And um, hopefully we can get this resolved soon enough to both, uh, to all parties' satisfaction. Uh, we certainly believe more testing is required, but um, you know, any comparisons between what goes on uh, between airlines and, and wireless carriers in the United States and in Europe, just understand that there is a difference and that difference is significant. Thank you, John. I, I think I heard this week too, there's something about the antenna tilt is different between the way they do it here and the way they do it in Europe too. And that factors into a difference. Um, there, there are some yeah. things that uh, you pointed out earlier, Leslie, that uh, uh, cell sites within a certain, within two miles of airports may not be activated or may be activated on a low power uh, another way to mitigate the interference is to tilt the antennas down so mm-hmm. that they're not pointing directly at aircraft when they're landing in, uh, in their flight approach. So th- there are ways of getting around it, but um, you know, the fact of the matter is uh, you know, the frequency of operation is, is key here, and, uh, and we need to verify that that separation, both in the United States and, and in Europe, is sufficient and, uh, and, and won't cause any, any problems. And it's like over a 200 megahertz separation, right? Yeah. In the United States, it's uh, if you count all the pieces, it's uh, 220 megahertz. In Europe, it's 400 megahertz. So, you know, as as an old RF engineer, you would I would yeah. think that that's adequate. But um, you know, I think it's it's still important that we we test and verify. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Jim, you're going to wrap us up with a story that's OSHA-related. Yeah, uh, one of the sadder parts of our job is reporting on tower fatalities, and uh, we did just that in September of last year on a uh, tower worker who fell off of a uh, tower in Illinois. And um, obviously, after those incidents, OSHA... Uh, becomes involved and they investigate and they, they do a good job of it and they do a very thorough job of it. And we were, <clears throat> even though it's a sad story, we're happy to report that they, OSHA, after this investigation uh, on this particular site, found that there was no culpability of the tower company itself who employed the uh, the tower tech, Rusty uh, Soul, who, who fell to his death, but um, that they found that uh, he was not adhering to the policy set forth by Windy City Tower Company and uh, not using his fall protection equipment to be 100% tied off uh, at all times. So that's, um, and, and I had a conversation uh, just yesterday with the, with the owner of Windy City Tower 
uh, Brian Zabinski. And he assured me that he said, look, we, we supervise our employees for violations of fall protection policies and uh, enforce zero tolerance policies. Uh, and everybody has been calm trained training uh, and they have a privately owned training tower for additional training and education. So uh, they've uh, certainly put themselves out there as, as uh, an example of, of a company doing something right. And as happens sometimes, there's operator error uh, at, at the site. And un unfortunately, this is this is what occurred here. But OSHA cleared Windy City Tower of, of any culpability in um, as part of the settlement. I thought this was, was an interesting adjunct to that. Part of the settlement, OSHA will be reviewing monthly third-party audits uh, of Windy City for a year. But but these these audits are going to be performed by a qualified team employed by a company called Safety Check out of Manuka, Illinois. And uh, they will be retraining Windy City employees on area lift use and provide documentation to OSHA uh, about that about that training. And um, Brian Zbinski, owner of Windy City, uh, told me the other day, he said, look, we're happy to have the investigation of this incident resolved. No findings of fault by our company. And uh, he, he said he uh, really appreciates uh, the, the oversight and, and the work by, of course, by his attorneys who uh, helped him uh, through, this, uh, through this ordeal. So uh, sad story, but it was, uh, ended up uh, not being the fault of the, of the tower company itself who had done everything they can to ensure that their workers work safely. All right, Jim, thank you. And that is a wrap for this week. Thank you for listening to Inside Towers Week in Review. We'll see you in another week. Thank you for listening to Tower Talks. To subscribe to our podcast, our daily newsletter, or use our other industry resources, please visit InsideTowers.com. Until next time, you've been listening to Tower Talks from Inside Towers, the wireless infrastructure industries podcast.